Good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name is Nathan. Happy to see you here. Thanks for joining us online. If that's where you are today, wherever you are, I'm glad you're with us in this sense. I'd like to invite you to raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to read a long section from Mark 9, so it'd be great to look it up in your phone or ask somebody to hand you a Bible. And also there's sermon notes pages that'll help to to, um, follow along, maybe take a couple of notes. If you're here for the first time, we'd love to just say thanks for coming. Um, We have roasted coffee, bags of roasted coffee beans. Um, right outside the doors. We'd love to give you one of those um, as a kind of a thank you, welcome kind of a gift. In the middle of summer here, end of July, happy that you're, you, that you're here with us, that you've joined us for worship, and um, grateful to be back with you. Our summer series is called Love and Power. We've been exploring the history of the early Christian church, the first followers of Jesus, the primitive uh, Christian community, and, and the way that that community was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're looking at this, this book in the Bible called Acts, which is the second book written by a follower of Jesus named Luke. He wrote the gospel according to Luke, and then he writes, he writes Acts. And we've been looking at various passages in this book called Acts to see what is associated with this experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see this phrase, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, all the way through the book of Acts. And essentially what we've seen is that whenever people are filled with the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit in their life is essentially love and power in various forms. They're filled with love and they're filled with power. That's what characterizes the early Christian church, the primitive church, the first followers of Jesus. Remarkable love, like, you know, former enemies now being in the same community, and remarkable power at the same time. And it's not because they've conjured up some sort of hidden human potential that they've figured out a way to, you know, magically unlock. They haven't found some sort of early, uh, you know, first century life hack kind of thing that you read about so much today. No, they've been filled with the Spirit of God. That's what's going on. They've been empowered by a source outside of themselves that enables them to live in a way that is actually more fully human, but is remarkable in the sense that it is so characterized by love in a, in a culture of hate and so characterized by power uh, against a back backdrop of some really impotent spirituality um, that we read about in the Gospels when they just can't seem to figure it out and and it's it's not all fully coming together. So we've been preaching on all kinds of ways that love and power in the early church affects the early church as well as the culture around the church. For instance, last Sunday, Rich, thanks for preaching last Sunday, Rich preached a sermon about unity in the church as a direct result of the church being filled with the Holy Spirit. A couple weeks before, Christina Wilkins preached about boldness as a direct result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I preached a sermon on the power to heal, which is, which is revealed in the early followers of Jesus as a direct result of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, as you read through Acts, you notice that love and power of the early Christians, it's being expressed in very specific ways. And you can, you can essentially draw a straight line from boldness to filled with the Spirit. Unity, filled with the Spirit. To healing, there's this direct connection, the love and the power, essentially the effectiveness that the church is having in its culture. It goes right back to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I think it'd be hard to argue that there's a, a bigger main character in Acts than the Holy Spirit. Clearly, we could say that a major theme in Acts is the theme of the Holy Spirit. There are other themes too, though. There are other themes. 
And prayer is one of the other themes that we read about a lot in, um, in Acts. It's a major theme. The words pray or praying show up in almost every chapter in Acts, such as Acts 1. They all join together constantly in prayer. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts 12, Peter's in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. In addition, many of the letters that are written by Christian leaders to the various churches in the region emphasize prayer as well. Paul to the Ephesians, he says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. He says to the Ephesians, pray, that's the Ephesians. He says to Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Not add a little prayer. Let's pray real quick. Devote yourselves to prayer. To the Thessalonians, pray continually. When you read about the early Christians, you're reading a lot about prayer. It is a big theme and it's easy to see. It's like the theme of the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit, prayer is associated with boldness. It's associated with unity. It's associated with healing and so many of the other things. But unlike the Holy Spirit, the connection between prayer and these other things is far less clear. There's no straight, direct line it feels to me that the connection is a little bit more mysterious. It's a little less direct. I'm not sure we can totally fully figure it out. This morning, this is essentially what I want to try to preach about, though, is the connection between prayer and the early Christian community, which is actually a really big topic, and it's too big to, to cover in one sermon. So I'm going to limit it to this. I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to try to explain how prayer works. I don't know that I'll ever figure that out fully, uh, or even close to it, and nor do I want to teach how to pray. Um, so I'm not going to preach on how prayer works or on how to pray. Those are both great uh, questions and topics. Um, to the how to pray idea, I would recommend the Lord's Prayer. I would recommend our Way of Life Catechism class on how to pray on the Lord's Prayer. But this morning, I want to try to limit and focus on essentially just this one thing, this one simple observation, I just want to walk around it and make a couple of uh, thoughts, uh, share a couple of thoughts about it. And the simple observation is this, that the fruit of a prayer-filled life is much love and much power. I'm not exactly how the formula works out, right? I'm not sure about that. But the fruit of a prayer-filled life is, is much love and much power. Put really simply, this is the observation. Where you see much prayer, you see much love and much power. And in situations in which you see little prayer, not a lot of love, and there's not a lot of power. I was walking on the beach last week with uh, my brother-in-law and one of them, and we were, he was sharing stories with me, really hard stories, really rough stories about a couple of years uh, the last couple of years where he served as a chaplain in the hospital. So just all day long, he's dealing in the ER with uh, situations that are just desperate and dire. And he told me a couple of really memorable stories about prayer. And they weren't the kinds of stories that explained how prayer worked. 
And they weren't the kind of stories that revealed a certain way you should pray. They were just the kind of stories that, that made this startling, powerful observation that prayer is powerful. That in ways that we maybe try to explain away or in ways that, in, in a sense, um, in a way that we find it pretty easy to doubt and go, well, maybe it was these things that happened. Every once in a while, maybe you've had examples of this in your life. Maybe you've got a story or two <clears throat> where it's, it is undeniable that there was a connection between prayer and power. Like something broke free, something happened that was beyond your ability to reason or figure out. There was no formula that you followed. But you come away with this specific sense, this powerful sense that where prayer is happening, there's love and there's power. Let's look at a passage from Mark's gospel that I think is about as direct as we can find in the Bible. <clears throat> this is Mark chapter 9. Before the book of Acts, there's four stories about the life and teachings of Jesus. They're called the gospels. Mark and Matthew record a story that is either really close or it's the same one. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this story is interesting because it foreshadows the connection between prayer and power, all right? I'll just gonna read it to you and then I'll put the last couple verses which are our main focus up on the screen. Jesus and three of his disciples went up on a mountain and now they're returning to the rest of his disciples. And when they come down the hill, they see the rest of the disciples are, are surrounded by this huge crowd and there's all this commotion. Verse 14 of Mark chapter nine. <clears throat> when they, that is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us, if you can, Jesus said. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And here's our focus this morning, verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, 
Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So there's a lot happening in this story. Um, there's, and the similar story that's recorded in Matthew 14. But the implication of Jesus' answer to the disciples' question, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we accomplish this? Is the power needed for this kind of work comes only through prayer. And that's all we get. And I want, him, I want the disciples to say, so were we not praying enough? But we don't hear that. Were we not praying the right way? We don't hear that either. This is what we're left with. The, the power you need for this kind of work, which you failed to accomplish, comes only through prayer. Jesus doesn't explain it. He just makes a very clear connection, does he not, between prayer and power. That is the, that is the clear implication. In fact, in fact, I think it's explicit. There's a connection between prayer and power. Now, I tend to read this story as a story of failure, Jesus sounds really irritated to me in this story. Um, and, and it's easy for me to personalize stories of failure and to think, man, I, I, maybe it's because I'm not praying enough. Maybe I'm not praying the right way. And, and I start turning it, turning, trying to turn prayer into a formula when in fact it's more of a mystery than a formula. It's more relational than propositional, right? So if this story does reveal a failure on the part of the disciples, which I think it does, Here's an important observation. It's not a relationship-ending failure, is it? It's not a relationship-ending failure. They don't flunk out of discipleship school at this point because they failed to be able to cast the demon out. It's a learning experience for them. Jesus makes one of his strongest statements ever on the power of prayer against the backdrop of the lack of power and apparently prayer of his disciples, but then he continues to disciple them. He continues to walk with them. He continues to share life with them and to serve them and to serve with them. My spiritual director's name's Tom Brindley, Father Tom Brindley. He once observed this and I wrote it down. Jesus continued with his disciples and gave them space to not get it until they got it. Isn't that good? Jesus continued with his disciples he didn't quit. He didn't kick them out. And gave them space to not get it until they got it. So this morning, two thoughts on the mystery, and that's, I think, what it is. Two thoughts on the mystery of prayer, power, and love. First, prayer is not episodic. It's constant. At least it, it can be and it should be. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. It can be translated, pray continually. Paul is teaching prayer as a way of life. Isn't that interesting? Not as a tool that you take off of the shelf when you need something. Not as a tool that you take off the shelf when you're scared or when you're, when, when you're in need or when you're lost. That's a great time to pray. We should pray in situations. But Paul is talking about prayer that is not situational. It's not episodic. He's talking about prayer as a way of life, as an ongoing thing. Pray continually. Pray without ceasing. Clearly, we should pray in all situations. But prayer is more than an episodic or just a situational experience. We're invited. I think this is fascinating. We're invited into a dimension of the human experience, that is prayer, that at one time seems to like 
connect or fill the gap between the physical and the spiritual. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that amazing? There's this capacity that we as humans have been given as spiritual beings. It's called praying, prayer, that enables us to bridge the gap between the physical and the spiritual. And not just episodically, not just occasionally, but consistently. Early in their time with Jesus, his disciples asked them, <clears throat> ask him to teach them to pray. Apparently, they're realizing that Jesus' approach to prayer is, is uh, different than theirs. Um, there's a capacity that he is, is revealing that they haven't even really stepped into much yet. And so they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And his response is, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes it's called the Our Father. Many Christian traditions teach that you should teach, you should pray the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer every day. I would absolutely encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. But understand that this is basic prayer training. This is basic. This is Jesus saying, start here, right? The purpose of training is to weave a skill like an attitude or an action into the rest of your life, into normal, regular, everyday life. So what begins as a discipline, which, you know, something that you do, is meant to gradually and eventually become just part of who, who you are. And through training, that series of actions should just become, you know, much more natural all the time. You know, this is a series of actions that took me, like, weeks or maybe months to figure out, right? But this is just how you throw now. This is just how I throw. I don't even think about it, right? But this used to be, oh, now, now what do I, I mean, have you ever taught a six-year-old how to throw a baseball? It's like, uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. But, but now this is just like, this is just normal. Or another metaphor, like your dietary uh, habits. Maybe, maybe it took years to get to a place where you're eating the kinds of foods that you that you feel like you should be eating, maybe it's still a real challenge, right? But, but th there are certainly, there's, I, I imagine you have examples where you can, oh yeah, yeah, I haven't had that for 20 years. Do you know when the last time I went to McDonald's was? Rich loves this, 1987. Yes, thank you very much, 1987. I don't eat that anymore. I just don't. It's not hard for me. I drive right by McDonald's, right? But, but it's because certain habits get repeated and repeated, and then they just become natural. They just become part of, part of who you are. Prayer, which for some is like one of the weirdest, most awkward, please don't ask me to do that in public kind of things, it can become natural. It can become like breathing. And it's constant. It's not episodic. That's what we're trying to say. It's not just a spiritual practice that we do in only really spiritual or specific situations. This can become a way to live. Prayer can become natural. One of the basic assumptions of a biblical worldview. Um, the Jewish culture, baked right into the Bible, brings this basic assumption. The basic assumption and forming a worldview here of humanity is this, that people pray. Right? People pray. Uh, prayer is part of life. Jews in the Old Testament, they pray. Jews and Gentiles who start following Jesus in the New Testament, they pray. It doesn't take long to look around when in, in our culture and see people in desperate moments. It's like, that's what people do. We pray. Uh, there's, this, there's this something that like calls out to the higher power or cr the creator or however it's defined in your understanding, right? For, uh, to pray. Prayer is part of life. 
communicating with our creator, listening to God, speaking to God, is part of the way that we were made to live, right? And that's powerful. It's powerful. Listen, Jesus assumes his disciples will pray like he assumes a little girl will ask her dad for what she needs. Like he assumes the dad will take great delight in hearing her and giving her what she needs. It's an assumption based on an understanding of a healthy relationship. He assumes that we're going to pray. Jesus assumes active relationship that's loving and powerful and constant, not episodic. The picture we get of prayer in the early church, and then we get glimpses of it throughout the history of the church, is not episodic prayer. It's constant like a loving relationship is constant, and it's active like breathing. It's part of life. That's the first observation. Here's a second thought about prayer. And I'm going to use another big fancy word because it helps me to remember, to remember it. Prayer is not monolithic. Okay, it's not episodic. It's constant. Secondly, it's not monolithic, meaning it's not self-contained and standalone and unrelated to other things and one way, one time, this one thing. In other words, there's more than one way to, to do it. Um, prayer is intentions expressed in words, but it's also intentions expressed in actions. You can pray with your mouth. You can pray with your muscles. You can pray in a place of worship like this. You can pray in the workshop behind your house. St. Benedict, um, the, the slogan in Benedictine monasteries since the 6th century has been ora et labora, which is Latin for pray and work. Pray and work. And if you were to be very precise and you were to add up the daily schedule of a Benedictine monk, you would see that they pray for eight hours a day and they work for eight hours a day. But it's not a one eight-hour block followed by another. It's not do the spiritual and then do the, the, the second. No, it fits like this. It fits like this. Pray, work, pray, work, pray, work, pray, work. All throughout the day adds up to eight hours each and the line begins to blur between the two. And the, this, this false dichotomy that's been sort of stamped on Western culture that says this is spiritual and this is secular, that gets blurred out. And you begin to see everything is sacred. And prayer becomes the work you do. And the work that you're doing continues to be an expression of your prayer as you're in the garden or doing whatever it is that you're doing. All of life is worship. All of life is unto God. All of life is filled with the Spirit, and none of life is divorced from the love and the power of God. That's the point. None of life is divorced. Where can I go from your presence, David? Praise. Like, nothing is outside of where you can see me and know me and where I can see and know and communicate with you. Two summers ago, I lived at a Benedictine monastery in Norcia, Italy, which you've probably heard me say a few times. And one of the monks that I got to talk to was also a priest. His name was Father Martin. And early in my time there at the monastery, I sat with him for a short amount of time, and I confessed that, man, in just the first couple days, I had prayed for everybody I could possibly think of to pray for. I'd prayed for my children's children's children. I'd prayed for all of you. I prayed for everybody I could possibly imagine existed. I had just been, I was like racking my mind. And so I, 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 I confessed to him that I was struggling with, frankly, all these hours devoted to prayer. Like, do we really need eight? That's a long time. I don't know what else to pray for in, in this time. I didn't want to admit it, but that's what I was struggling with. 
And this is what he said. He said, the answer to your question is adoration, is what Tim was talking about earlier. The answer to your question is adoration. And then he said this, and I wrote it down, and I'm still trying to figure it out. He said, the more adoration, he said this first. He said, the monk's work is to adore God. And then he said, the more adoration, the more purity. And the greater the purity, the more effective the intercession. Now, see, I'd been talking about how I just intercede with, for people. That's, that was the essence. That was the bulk of my prayer was just God help God help Tom. God help Janet. God help Rich. God help Melissa. That's just what I prayed about. That's intercession. And he helped me back it all the way up. And he said, the answer to your question. And I'm like, my prayer list isn't long enough. I don't have enough people to pray for eight hours a day. He said, the answer to your question is adoration. The more adoration, the greater the purity. The greater the purity, the more effective the intercession And I've been thinking a lot about that for a long time. I think what he said has something to do with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see things and pray for things and want things the way God wants them. They will intercede for things in in the name of Jesus, in the way of Jesus. The pure in heart are blessed that they will see God. See, prayer for me had become monolithic, one thing at one time. Pray for people in the morning. That's what I would do. Ask God for help in the morning. Consequently, eight hours of prayer throughout the day, it just simply felt unnecessary to me. My prayer list is not that long. And so I needed help specifically. I needed help seeing that my prayer included very little adoration. And in general, the bigger vision that I needed to see was that prayer should not just be a piece of my life. My whole life should be a prayer. My whole life should be a prayer. What if I worked to shed the perspective that sees prayer as an effort to bend God's will to mine and instead leaned into the idea of prayer as time with God, both in focused seasons throughout the day, like before I eat or as soon as I wake up, as well as this ongoing fostered awareness of God's presence all throughout the day, praying and working. Ora et labora. I think that would help me increasingly see things as God sees them, want what God wants, love what God loves, experience God's love and power in my life. Friends, the the point of the sermon is this. I'm, I'm hoping to inspire you to a life of prayer. I'm hoping to inspire you to a life of prayer, not just challenge you to pray before you go to bed or pray before you eat lunch. Those are two great habits, and I hope you embrace them, and I hope they're helpful to you. But I'm shooting for something higher. My hope is that this church would be a house of prayer, that we would be people of prayer, that we would be people who engage our work as prayer, that the conversations that we have with one another would be like a prayer, 
that the morning and the evening would be calls to pray, and that all of life would become just, a, just one continual communication with God, and that we would increasingly experience the fruit of prayer, which is much love and much power. Amen? Amen. So God, we look to you for help in this. If we're at all like those in the Bible, we're going to be slow to learn this, and we're going to frequently um, become frustrated. And so we pray for grace. We ask you for grace to be in relationship with you by grace, um, that our, our, our life could be prayer, and that increasingly, all that we are and all that we do would be characterized by love that is powerful and by a power that is really loving. Um, All for your glory and the restoration of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.